Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Discerninghearts.com presents Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. Dr. Turek is a professor of theology and chair of Domatic Theology at St. Patrick's Seminary and University. She received her doctorate in Sacred Theology at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Her other publications include Towards a Theology of God the Father, Atonement, Soundings in Biblical Trinitarian and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. Here is your host, Evan Collins. I uh, I was thinking of it because it's like the only we, and this is something I can't remember which page it is in, in the book, but it's definitely something that I got from Ratzinger for sure. The only way that, and just a reminder that like, and for myself, even in this conversation, is the only way that we are saying that the Father is suffering is because this is love. We're talking about love specifically here. And so there's a lot of poetic um, analogous language, but here's something that I think is important is that we have to speak in this way to be able to talk about these mysteries. And these are things that it's not just an idea that is unique. It's not germane to your thought alone. Like this is Christ on the cross. It is finished. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, when when Jesus is sitting there on the cross, enduring, suffering, loving um, unto the end, you know, that's what that's exactly what we get from uh, the Gospel of John. He loved them till the end, right? That's what Jesus did for us and what he shows us. And I think a helpful way for me to think about it is when we're thinking of atonement, we're not just talking about the sin that was washed away, but the most important aspect of that we're discussing is the positive part of it because sin is nothing, right? <laughs> like that's like I'm thinking of like in Catherine of Siena's dialogue. She says, sin is nothing. The love of Christ, now that is something. That's the deepest thing that we can imagine is the Trinitarian, the, this notion that God is love. And there is no area of estrangement or experience of hiddenness of God in our lives where his love is not actually the most fundamental yes. reality yes. that is present. And what we see in the drama of atonement, in like um, you could almost say the mythological like expression that's happening in the passion narrative, what we're seeing is, well, one, it, it is actual history that happened, but two, we're seeing the depths of what it means to say that God is love revealed in the experience of history. You know, I mean, yes. and that is yes. that is a very important for me as a follower of Jesus. That is the most important thing for me to keep in mind as I look at Christ and I sit here and think of his words to me, follow me. And then his words also, pick up your cross and follow me. And you have to say to yourself, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? And then you have to look at this and exactly what we're talking about. Well, what is, what is the love of the Father? 
and what is the love of the sun? And then exactly what we're talking about here, we're not called to co-atone in the sense of to just muster up the strength to be able to wash away the sins of others, but instead, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we're participating in the sonship of Jesus Christ as children of the Father. And that's how we co-atone, is we actually act as Jesus in the world. I am going to read a section of Balthazar discussing what discipleship entails that you have in your book from Theodrama 4. This is on page 170 um, and 171. So kind of to give a little bit of a brief recap going on here, where we, we talked about how on our own, we could never atone in the capacity that's needed because we could never fully reveal the Father's love in the way that Jesus does as the only begotten Son, the perfect um, Son of the Father. But what Christ gives us in the gift of being Christians in the church is that we get to participate in His Sonship. So His representation is what enables us to collaborate as sons in the Son. That's how you word it in the book. And to kind of put that into normal speak, what I was referencing earlier, Christ calls us to be His disciples. This is really common language in the church, but I want to remove some of the buzzwordiness of that. And something that I think is so good about your book is there's a buzzword, being missionary disciples. uh, That's a buzzword. The universal call to holiness. That's a buzzword. Now, these are very deeply true aspects of what it means to follow Christ, but I want to dive into that a little bit. And we talk about how the doctrine of discipleship and atonement is one that you say advocates the universality and prodigality of the Christian's love. And one of the things that's important there is um, this is not limited in any way. So, and you mean like to members of the church alone, right? Because this is the father's universal love. And that's one of the things that's so incredible at it. So then Balnazar talks about this. I mean, he has this, what you'd call a staunch conviction that the universal call to holiness inevitably entails a call to the vicarious bearing of the guilt of all. Strong language. Now, I'm going to quote Balthazar a little bit, and maybe we can dissect this a little bit, and I think it'll be very fruitful too. So this is Balthazar speaking now. Quote, Discipleship brings with it the gift of participation in the cross and resurrection of Christ. This participation is bound to extend itself to the pronobis, meaning for us, of Christ's paschal mystery. We have to speak of this with reticence, as does the New Testament itself. Is it not disconcerting to hear Paul say, unabashed, that he is crucified together with Christ in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19? He is quite aware, of course, of the vast gulf between Christ's crucifixion and his own, See 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, and wants to know and preach nothing but the cross of Christ. See 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. There is a closeness and a distance here, as is shown by the phrase, quote, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. The sufferings of the God-man are all sufficient, but within those sufferings, a place has been left for the disciples. See John chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. 
through grace, a fellowship of suffering and resurrection is created. And this fellowship only has meaning if the pronobis is extended to the participants. The metaphor of the vine brings us as close as we can get to uttering its meaning. Those who live in Christ from the root and stem of Christ will bear fruit. End quote. Now, I just think that this is absolutely, <laughs> I think this is absolutely credible. This is an absolutely incredible way of thinking about discipleship. <laughs> now, there's a lot of ways that we can dive into this, but I think this is one of those great mysteries that a lot of us sit here and say, because I think a big temptation in the Christian life is to overemphasize one of these two aspects, either the closeness, and you basically sound like you you could do it all, yes. <laughs> or the distance, and you basically make it sound like there's nothing for you to do in the midst of it. But Christ wants to affirm the unique personhood, our agency involved in this cosmic dance, you know, of atonement. And so instead, we actually have a fellowship, that word fellowship, we have a communion in suffering and resurrection, suffering and resurrection. So it's not just resurrection here, because we're living in this world yes. where sin still has to be yes. born away, yes. <laughs> like yes. we've talked about. And yes. we have a role to play in that. We have yes. a real role to play in that. And so discipleship is not just catechesis. It's not just sitting around and saying, oh, you know, you know, here's what it means, the Nicene Creed means in this in this capacity or X, Y, and Z, or here's what the word transubstantiation means. All those things are good things. But instead, it really means that Christians bear suffering, but they don't bear it in and of themselves. They bear it in the Son by the power yes. of the Holy Spirit, yes. and they bear it because they're receiving and witnessing to the Father's forgiving, yes. generous love. Yes, yes, absolutely. And with all of this, as you said, we're, we're in the Son, participating in His own Sonship, with Him, through Him, in Him, we are receiving then the Father's uh, love who is begetting us as sons in the Son. We are not simply, when you say disciples, yes, that, that term can be reduced to just like fans or followers of this or that. But no, our deepest identity is to be sons of God, children of God. You have Paul saying in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, be what you are, be imitators of God as his beloved children. You have John constantly referring to uh, disciples as beloved, beloved of God. What we are called to be is sons and daughters in the Son. And so our life of grace is a life of sonship. And in this fallen world, and it's the only world there is right now, if insofar as we live our sonship, affirm, assert our sonship against sin, it's, it's many effects, it's many consequences all around us. We are atoners. 
the inmost reality of the work of atonement is sonship, asserting itself, his filial love, against sin, yeah. bearing the consequences of sin. Well, even now, the consequences of sin, my own and that of others, is everywhere in evidence. By baptism and by God's ongoing grace, the communication of his divine life, I am to live divine sonship. I am to live my identity as a son in the sun over and against sin, yeah. it, the, the effects. And so this universal call to holiness, it's not simply the call to virtue. It's to be, it's to be, it's the holiness of sons of God, be imitators of God as his beloved children and live in love, filial love, as Christ did. And he, as he bore the sins of the world. So it, yeah, it comes down to this. Be what you are and act accordingly. Since we are sons by grace, we must act as sons, living out filial love in the face of sin. We bear the consequences of sin with our filial love. And thereby we atone. Thereby we atone. It's a mission. Yes. It's a task. If salt has lost its saltiness, who can restore its savor? You know, and that's exactly what I think of. Salt is supposed to be salty. And Christians, this is what we are. This is what we yes. are. You know, so that's one of the things Christ is calling us to be. He's saying, you don't like, and I think this is one of the things um, John Paul II and Savici Dolores says that the redemption, this is one of the things you talked about. If Christ's mission of redemptive love suffering is open to the participation of all, redemption lives on and develops in history yes in the mystery of the church as the mystical body of christ yes. if his sonship lives on in us therefore his mission of sonship lives on in us if his sonship lives on in us if we participate in his sonship we participate in his mission of atonement because all atonement is 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 sonship that's right As asserting itself by bearing the effects of sin that's what sonship does in this yeah. fallen world. If we participate in his sonship, and we do, if we are given the, the spirit of sonship that animates our hearts, we are empowered thereby to live the mission of sonship, to give expression to this sonship over against sin. And yes. that enables us, and that actually it, we're commissioned, that we're equipped and we're commissioned along with Christ, to prolong yes. his mission of atonement. If we prolong his sonship, we prolong his mission of atonement. They're one and the same, as you pointed out. Our yes to sonship in Christ with baptism is a yes to his mission, co-atonement with Christ. We'll return to Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology, with Dr. Margaret Turek in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, 
Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Litany of Humility O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I, that others may be esteemed more than I, that in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I unnoticed, that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. We now return to Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. That's absolutely right. And that's exactly like one of the things that I was thinking about. John Paul II has that beautiful way where he says our existence, right, as members of the church, as Christians who have um, been baptized and thereby are children of the Father, he says their existence in Christ is a pro-existence, a being for others, so much so that whoever suffers in union with Christ completes by his suffering what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, right? And then you said, so that was John Paul II, but then you said, and I'm sure this is just a concise form of John Paul II um, of what you're saying, but so this suffering in union with Christ is in fact the authentically Christian form of solidarity with all humanity. Yes. Yes. And that's right. This is the whole thing where it's like, when we say that Christ became sin, we don't say that he sinned, that he no, sinned, no. but instead we say that he he bore the guilt, right? And so yes. same for us Christians, we are actually called to not sin. We're given the grace, we're given the <laughs> yeah. grace to do so. And whenever, but we are called to and I know that this can sound cheeky for a lot of us because the Gospels have gone stale from lack of letting the sheer strangeness of Christ's interactions pierce our hearts, uh, myself included, many times. But when Christ goes up to a tax collector and then 
eats at his house. That is crazy. The, the level of entering into the depths of somebody's estrangement of themselves that Jesus is doing there, a Jew who's a tax collector, entering into that level of estrangement and dining with him. But yet we can't forget, he doesn't just eat with Matthew. He calls him to conversion. He calls him to conversion. And so similarly, we have to authentically enter into solidarity with humanity by genuinely suffering with people. We genuinely suffer with them. We don't sit here and stand in a place of being better than others. We sit in a place of gratitude and in grace, but we really do suffer. I think what enables me, especially, I think of the situations where this is when I reflect upon that I am a sinner, but then I know how the Father has loved me through Jesus Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit, then I can sit with others who have been wounded by sin, estranged by sin, and I can enter into that place with them and then thereby only by the grace of God. But it does take me to will it on my part. I can enter into a place where I reveal the love of the Father for them and I act as a little Christ. Yes. But it's only by grace. Yes. But but I have to do it with Christ. I have to do it with him. (laughs) Yes. And all to the glory of the Father. That's right. You know, as I was listening to you, I, I can throw in a, a one-liner of Benedict the Sixteenth. It is so good, and it succinctly confirms what you and I have been talking about for the last couple of minutes. He said, "You," and he's speaking to to Christians here. He says, "You will be redeemers with the Redeemer." Mm. He might as well have said, "You will be atoners with the Atoner." Just as you were sons in the Son, you will be redeemers with the Redeemer, just as you were sons in the Son. Or you could say, you will be atoners with the atone, because precisely by virtue of being sons in the Son, it's our, our the gift of sonship that equips us and commissions us, therefore, to atone in, with, and through Christ. It's like, it, here I borrowed this, this phrase from Father Hoffman, where he said, mm. it's in us that Christ's atonement blossoms, just blossoms. It's his work bearing fruit in our work. It is his filiation, his sonship, that is being extended to us and bearing fruit in and through us, through our works of mercy including the work of atonement. So it's all to the glory of Christ and through him to the Father. The only glory we we deserve is maybe having the guts to say yes. (laughs) Like like Mary did. Yeah. Like that fear to say, let it be done in me according to your word. Let God, I will let you father me. God the Son, I will let you live in me. I will let you suffer and die in and through me. Yeah. Holy Spirit, I will and I will make room for you. I'll let you animate me such that all of this can come about. That's the only glory left to us is that is is the Marian fiat. Yeah. Even though even that fiat is enabled by the grace of God. That's but right. The, but the freedom of that fiat is ours. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We remain, yeah, we remain totally free. And that's that's the most amazing thing about this is that exactly kind of one of the things that we've mentioned before, either it was off off screen or on screen, but it's something that I am you said it's it's not that Christ when when Jesus Christ on the cross, his exchange of place with us isn't him taking our place as if we get like displaced, right? So a lot of the ways that people yeah. like musical chairs. Yeah, that's right. Like, yeah. yeah, that's the that's the get out of jail free card that I like to talk about. Christ says, um, you know, you're you're about to walk into prison and Jesus says, Okay, like actually I'm gonna put on an outfit and look like you know, look like you and then and then you get you get this or whatever and he displaces us. But rather what's happening, and this is the that difference between the negative influence and the positive influence, is that we are being placed, we are being in place re-established as children of the father and so what ends up happening then and and i think that this is important because we're talking that's the true meaning of being born again go on that's right that's right yeah that's exactly what it is so then that's exactly the way that i wanted to go about this is i think this puts the sacramental life into the proper light this is a really proper angle for it because when we're when we were baptized and as saint paul says when we die in baptism, in a sense, we put off the old man, we put on the new, which is Christ. But yet, we are still us as persons. You know, we our genealogy remains like we we are who we are. Yet we've been born again in Christ because we get to live this life in grace, in gratitude, loving with the Father. And yet, even when we have been given everything and we still sin we get to receive the forgiving love of Christ again in confession. But then we receive, of course, the grace onto that would correspond to maturation in the Christian life and confirmation because the Holy Spirit's already within us, but we're we're having that stamping, you know, in that deeper capacity, you might say, in confirmation. But one of the things that I think is important, and you do mention it in your book, and for some people, you might have already made this connection in listening. This is something that I thought was absolutely fantastic, but the mode of living we're talking about, co-atoning in Christ, this is what it means to live a Eucharistic life. That's what it means. And so this provides a depth to the Eucharist that is often unrealized, I think, in a lot of conversations regarding communion. And I think it's only fitting as a the United States, at least, is entering into this Eucharistic revival, and we're really, into, really trying to get people to see what's going on here. Now, a little basic background, and I think most, most of us are completely aware of this, but Christ in the narratives of the Last Supper in the Gospels distinctively unites his passion with what is happening in the Last Supper. Now, Joseph Ratzinger has a lot of very beautiful writings about this in particular. I think he's the best on this that I have read um, personally, especially in his his collection of uh, liturgical writings that Ignatius put out that huge tome, which is so worth reading in so many different ways. But when Jesus unites these two things, and we most of us are aware of this, oh, Jesus unites these two aspects. And so what's happening at the Mass is this re-presentation of what's going on. And we say, oh, okay, that's all super beautiful and amazing. And wow, the symbolism and all this stuff. But we also know in the Eucharist, it's not a symbol, right? Jesus is really present there. But I think then taking it to the next level and saying, okay, Jesus shares this meal 
with his disciples, but he also shares this meal with the man <laughs> who betrays them to to the um, the Pharisees. And then in John's gospel, where he doesn't actually give us the words of institution or anything like that, but instead he gives us the washing of the feet, which I think shows the descent of the father's love that much more because Jesus acts like a servant yes. to his to yes. his disciples and washes their feet. And so we see this connection that Jesus is showing us, okay, receiving the Eucharist, participating in this meal that he gives, because he shows us very clearly, like, this is the new covenant, right? Living a life in this, it means action. Faith without works is dead, right? And so the Eucharist, and I think for a lot of us, it is very normal to develop a view of the Eucharist as this fills me and that's that. But what you receive, you give away. And so in true Christian worship, and this is what you say on page 178, in true Christian worship, therefore, there should be no difference between the celebration of the Eucharist and our everyday existence, except that between the source and its living fruit. Because when we receive Christ's sacrificial offering of himself and his perfect act of thanksgiving to the Father, then we are called to live our life as a sacrificial offering, as Christ did in the world for others. Yes. And yes. so that's what it is. Is so. And you sit here and go, well, I can't turn wine <laughs> and bread into me. You know, how do I live a Eucharistic life? This is what it means to be a saint: is you go out and you offer yourself up in a life of martyrdom, a witness, a life of witnessing to Christ. Now. That I'm not necessarily implying that everybody who's a Christian is going to get killed by other people. But you know what? I do think this is true. There's no Christian that gets out of this without dying multiple times over, you know, because you have to become the new man. And that requires this deep death to self in a way, the death of the ego and embracing of the life of Christ. And so you go out and in those situations, where you want to say, I've suffered enough, or it's not my problem, or it's not this, or it's not that. And instead, Christians, they step in and they do the countercultural thing, which is they love without ceasing and they yes. love in every circumstance. Yes. yes. So, what it was culturally normal for the Romans to kill abnormal children by leaving them out yes. to starve, yes. the Christians yes. collected them and they brought them in, and they raised them. When it was culturally normal to engage in basically i'm thinking of a nazi germany when it was culturally normal to engage in this horrific anti-semitism or something like that i think of somebody like dietrich von hildebrand where he actually when he was working at the university of munich he says i had a jewish ancestor (laughs) because he that's how deeply he wanted to oppose anti-semitism because he thought it was absolutely absurd and he stepped into the gap so much so that he was ended up getting put on the nazis blacklist and he had to flee yes. the country because he was going to be executed yes. if he was captured, him and along, alongside his family as well. And so you sit here and you think, why would he do that? There was a story that it's one of my favorites in his second wife, after his first wife had passed away, he married a woman, Alice von Hildebrand, who recently passed away, who's also fantastic um, in, in so many rights, a lot of the works that she's written. But she asked him one time, and this is in the biography, A Soul of a Lion, which is well worth reading to anybody here. But she asked him, um, he went from living you know, in like these 
really nice, beautiful settings because his father was an architect. His father was um, uh, not an architect, a sculptor, I believe. Um, he was, of course, a philosopher and he sat and had all these meals with these super popular, famous people and musicians and X, Y, and Z and stuff. And he lived this great life and was well-respected and always got to meet the Pope and everything. And then he ends up being exiled and living basically like a homeless person with his whole family. He doesn't just have a wife. He has a son who also is married and has children and all these things. And they all get corralled in this because he was going to live like Christ no matter what. And she ever, she asked him, was it hard to go from living basically in these, like, you know, these, this manner, basically the elites um, to yes. living like in pretty much squalor. And he said, I would never disdain an opportunity to receive Christian charity because that's how deeply wow. he believed in being like Christ, the call of it, because for him, there was no other option because that's what the gospel called for. And Sam too. And I think that that's right. And that might sound countercultural to us. So you're saying that I need to live like Christ, even then that means I have to courageously stand up to people where that's going to eliminate some of my social credit and some of my, maybe my social standing or people might look at me funny because I'm not upholding whatever the in-group party line is, whether that's ideology that is labeled as right-wing or labeled as left-wing or um, whether it's some faction within work that's forming or something like that, when you're a Christian and you cross over the gap and you love and you affirm the dignity of the human person in any situation, um, you will suffer. So you don't have to look for it, but you will suffer, but you suffer in Christ. And this is the atoning that's happening yes. here because yes. in that yes. sense, when you suffer it with Christ and you're bearing that guilt that everyone else is experiencing and you're acting as an intercessor, as a prophet, in a, in, a, in a sense, to the world, you're revealing the Father's heart to people, and you will be a sign of contradiction. Yes. yes. That's the difficult thing about discipleship. Absolutely. You will be a sign of, you don't have to look at sign of contradiction. Right. You will be a sign of contradiction. You will be. If I may, yeah. I'm, I'm going to venture along a, a line of reflection that is uh, particularly timely. I've heard that in recent days, there have been some voices in in the church who have written about the church's call to be inclusive. Most recently, there was a a cardinal who uh, wrote a letter to the people of his archdiocese. And in this letter, the cardinal quoted Pope Benedict, or or at least was, was referring to Pope Benedict as a theologian, a spiritual master that would agree with this cardinal's teaching. And I, I want to take this opportunity to point out that in my book, I make it very, very clear. As you know, I, I, I treat Joseph Ratzinger slash Pope Benedict's theology in a very thorough and, and very a scrupulously accurate way. And what Pope Benedict makes clear is that, yes, God's love is a forgiving love. God's love is a passionate love, and it's a, it remains a passionate love, even as his beloved have turned to sin. It's a passionate love, therefore, that it becomes a forgiving love. But for Pope Benedict, God's forgiving love that is given in advance 
of even our conversion. It's a forgiving love that always has the initiative that is given in advance. For Benedict, it's clear the aim of this antecedent forgiving love is to engender in the hearts of sinners conversion of heart, a transformation of life, and indeed a willingness to atone, to atone for one's sin. For Pope Benedict, God's forgiving love is not a one-sided action. It's not a unilateral work. It is the initiating love whose aim is ever to engender a mirroring, answering love that'll take the form of repentance in a sinner's heart, repentance, conversion, and the willingness to atone. Repentance, conversion, and hence accepting one's identity as son, accepting the life and the mission of sonship that will now affirm itself over against sin by bearing it in atonement. So just to the listeners out there, when you hear the, the notion of God's forgiveness, remember, God's forgiving love is not the result of our repentance, of our uh, atonement. Rather, God's forgiving love is at the start. It's at the very beginning of this process. And when he displays his willingness to forgive, it, this display, the self-showing of God's heart is made in order to engender in us, along with the gift of the spirit of divine love itself, that will empower us to give in, in turn, such that, uh, that, such that we convert our lives and atone for sin. All God wants and all the Father does is he fathers living images of himself. He doesn't just throw out gifts to which there is no response. Instead, his love is generative, is, is fatherly, meaning it aims to give birth in us to a capacity to mirror him, right. to, a, to an answer of love. It's, it's seeking in an unswerving, ever-faithful way this reciprocity, a mutuality that glorifies him. But precisely because we're now living a godly way, we're living as his true sons and daughters, it's to his glory too. He fathers his living image. We'll continue the conversation with Dr. Turek and Evan Collins in our next episode. You've been listening to Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek and your host, Evan Collins. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, as well as in the free Discerning Hearts app or on your favorite podcast streaming platform. You can also view this conversation on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. To learn more about the book on which this series is based, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, 
which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel this worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. <laughs>